When I was working in um, the K-12 system, I got to participate and eventually become a trainer myself, affiliate um, with the Pacific Education Group. And we did um, an, an experience called Beyond Diversity. It's a two-day racial consciousness kind of boot camp, if you will. And one of the activities that they did in there was really illuminating. And that was your racial autobiography bookends. So looking at when you've became conscious of race and racism and its implications, your earliest memory and your most recent memory. And given that you all need to get a chance to get to know us a little deeper, we thought uh, that it would be good for us to dive into that question for ourselves. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dangerous Group and executive director of Arts Us. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I have and share on this program are solely my own and not to be attributed to my employer or my office. Thank you. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. And I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group. What is your earliest memory? Um, when did you become conscious? of race, racism, its impacts, it's the, the intricacies of it, um, and you, the most earliest memory, and then the most recent experience. Um, and so we're going to start there. So let me throw that question out to y'all. What is your first and earliest memory of race, racism, your first foray into consciousness? So my grandparents are from Mexico, as are my parents. And we were raised speaking Spanish only in the home. And we learned English uh, by way of television programs and then ultimately speaking in school. At that point, my grandparents lived only a block from us in Chicago. And I remember in kindergarten going to uh, kind of a corner store, if you will, with my grandmother, just she and I. And it was a small mom and pop store, it wasn't a big store. When we got to the counter, she went to pay and then the store clerk in English, asked her a question, and my grandmother just smiled because she doesn't speak English. And the clerk asked her yet again the question, and she smiled again. And then I tugged her hand and I said in Spanish, uh, Grandma, he's asking you a question. Why aren't you answering? And she then said to me in Spanish, answer for me, and we can talk about this outside. And so I went ahead and answered the question. And when I did that, I could see the clerk's reaction and face. And it was not a friendly reaction. And it was this reaction of kind of rolling the eyes and this look of almost disgust that he had just waited on her. And I wasn't understanding what this was all about. I was not understanding why she wasn't answering and I was not understanding his reaction because in my mind, it was normal to speak both languages. I mean, it was normal for me to speak Spanish and understand English. So when we got outside, I asked her and she proceeded to say to me, look, you know, I, she was born in Mexico. I was born in, in the States. And she began to explain to me the difference and how she could only speak Spanish and did not un understand English. And, and then I asked her about the look on his face and his reaction. 
And then she got pretty emotional with me and she said, well, that's how they treat us here when we don't speak English. And it was really hard for me because, of course, I love, and she's since passed, love my grandma. And it, it helped me understand at a very early age the hate that some people have for immigrants. And I came home and talked to my parents about it. And they, of course, then reinforced all that my grandma had said. And I'll never forget, they both, my parents, but also my grandmother said, that's why it's so important for you to continue to learn English, right? But more importantly, to prioritize your education going forward. Because in life, we can be deprived of a lot of things. People can take away your goods and your property and your possessions, but there's one thing in life they will never take away from you is your education. So you need to really study hard and be the best that you can be at school. And that's what really stuck with me. And that to me was their way of kind of weaponizing (laughs) the hate against the system, so to speak, is we're going to show them by being the best that we can be with our education and being uh, able to then debunk all of the isms and tropes that they have about folks who immigrate here, particularly from Hmm. Mexico. You know, that there, there, there's so much that, that, that comes up there. You know, the, it, oftentimes those moments where you become aware of a piece of your reality, and this is true for everybody at some point on some topic, but, you know, for folks of color in particular, I think the earliness of that in comparison to many other folks, um, when, when you are forced to become aware, we are forced to become aware early on. I, I have a distinct memory when you talked about grandmother. So I got to, to spend the first part of my life prior to kindergarten with my grandmother, who's a light-skinned black woman living in Maplewood, Minnesota. And the only reason that we had land in Maplewood, Minnesota is because my great-grandfather, um, you know, kind of moved folks in there. And he overcame racially restrictive covenants. He overcame, you know, and, and which he could in some ways, in certain ways. But I began to see at this table a family that, attempted to um, attempted to navigate pretty white spaces, um, <laughs> attempted to navigate the Catholic Church, attempted to navigate the Lions Club in the case of my grandfather. And I would get at the dinner table these moments of adults. <laughs> well, they'd be at the dinner table playing cards, whatever it is, at my grandma's house. But it, it was almost like this safe haven where I'd be sitting, playing with my toys, listening to all these folks around tell their stories about encountering white people. Um, And some of them were were funny. Some of them were not funny at all. Some of them, I watched them laughing, but the words that they were saying weren't, um, it wasn't a happy story. Um, I remember, um, you know, one of the times I'm sitting, I can distinctly remember it It was my uncle was sitting at the head of the table um, and it was my mom and my grandmother. And they began to talk about my mom's experience in high school, she went to for a part of her school before she went to Central High School and as kind of a revolt to this was sent to a private school, you know, but she would be rem- reminiscing on these experiences that she had at this all white except for her private school. Um, and she'd basically fight every day, whether it was in school or just outside of school, fight for herself. And then um, she had a friend, Marcy, at, at one point that 
joined her, but I remember them sitting and telling the story. And I remember walking over and going, they're not nice people. Why are you talking about how much you're still friends with them? They're not nice people. And I watched the look across their faces as they realized that they're going to have to make this make sense to me because they keep talking about all these people that they hung out with and grown up with. I'm like, if they're sitting there being quiet while you're going through all of this, then those friends aren't nice people. And they had to explain to me, no, 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 no. Some folks treat them this way, but not all folks treat them this way. And then my grandmother said, well, and they ended up in this real deep conversation. And I kind of slowly melted back out to get my popcorn and watch. Those were the first moments of consciousness that I had. And because as I start to go out into the world, I would start to see these patterns that aligned up with these experiences. And I'm like, oh, this is what they were talking about. This is what they were talking about. Um, and this is in Maplewood, right? This is, this is, I had nothing but white friends all around, but then all of a sudden, and I had to be, it had to be before kindergarten because when, as soon as I got to kindergarten, we moved into St. Paul. Um, and so that's how early it was prior to kindergarten to help, you know, just learning these adults make sense of their own racialized world. That's kind of the moment where I started to ask those questions. What is it about how we are that's different than all these other folks around? And then all of a sudden, the differences became real stark as I began to watch them. That's kind of my earliest memory of, of consciousness and socialization. I don't think I ever had, I don't, I don't think I have like a single memory. I think mm -hmm. it's kind of a bunch. And a lot of it revolves around language, like Luz was saying, because my, mm -hmm. my dad spoke pretty, pretty good English, but he uh, always worked third shift when we were growing up. So conferences or, or, you know, anything like that, it, was, it fell on my mom. And my mom didn't speak much English at all. I did find myself translating a lot. But thinking of my earliest um, was probably like I was in preschool. I was at Head Start. And uh, I only spoke Hmong, like Luz mm. was saying. I only, we only spoke Hmong growing up. Um, so... I needed help in the bathroom and I was asking other kids, but I was asking in Hmong and nobody could help me. And uh, the teacher told my mom that this had happened. And I remember, you know, it's like one of those cute stories that you, my mom would tell to people and then they would laugh and I felt shame. Mm. I felt ashamed. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. And I know there was no malice you know, but I could hear them talking about it and I could hear them laughing about it. And I felt in that moment ashamed. And so I think, you know, then I started to recognize um, how different we were. Um, and, and in conjunction with that, my parents, I was, we grew up on the west side of St. Paul. Um, and so whenever we'd go to the grocery store or something, if my mom saw another Hmong person, they'd stop and talk. And they would say things like, oh, how are you? How's your family? Oh, you're just out grocery shopping today. Oh, that's nice, you know. And then they'd walk away and I'd always say, mom, who is that? I don't know. And I was like, that, but you, you guys just talked to each other like you knew, like you guys asked questions about each other. And she was like, that's what we do because we're Hmong and it's safe to be around people like you. And I remember going, mom, that's racist, you know, but, but also noting it in my mind. <laughs> so when you brought this up, Anthony, I kept, I was like, I was trying to think. Um, and then hearing lose your story just brought back all these other memories of like, mm. 
a lot of it did relate around language, though, and having to communicate with our neighbors when we were, um, you know, when we started going to school, uh, being that translator for my parents, when the neighbors are elderly white neighbors who were so well-meaning, they'd come over and bring vegetables from their garden and stuff, you know, <laughs> and like they used to bring us school supplies and my parents wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be able to say anything to them. And so we would, we'd end up coming in and translating and then becoming those translators for conferences. You know, they weren't offering translators at that time. I, I think they do now. I hope they do now. Mm. Um, but it fell on us to do it. So a lot of it did revolve around language and how that made me realize that we, we were different. Well, language and food. I'll share one last story. And Don, I know that you're you're coming up on yours. Um, I, I remember very clearly in second grade. So Chicago winters, right? So it's cold outside. The radiator's on in the classroom. Lunchtime comes. And I went to a really small school where there was no lunch room and there was no lunch service. So you brought your lunch to school. And I remember with clarity that it was lunchtime in the classroom. And this was early on. We had transferred into the school. And my mother would pack tacos for us. And she would put them in aluminum foil. And she would tell us, okay, about an hour or so before lunch, put them on the heater, on the radiator, so that your tacos could be warm. Mm -hmm. And so I remember doing that and sitting down and opening my foiled wrap tacos that she had made from home and everyone else is eating sandwiches like peanut butter jelly and whatever right and they all looked at me I was the only Mexican in the classroom like I was a Martian of some sort and started making jokes about what are you eating you know and ew and all that stuff and I was feeling shame just like what you just said Halee but then I also thought well, my food's better than yours. Look how dry yours looks like. <laughs> and quite honestly, um, the first time I had a peanut butter jelly sandwich wasn't until, gosh, high school, maybe even college. I had no, we had no reference. We didn't buy that kind of food in my household. We just, we ate 24, we ate Mexican food 24-7. I mean, that's what you do. You're in a I Mexican was in college. <laughs> I was in college and my nephew asked me to make him tomato soup from a can and I burned it. Because <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what it was. There's no reference, right? There's just no cultural no reference. reference. Yeah, yeah. And what, was he asking you, was he asking you specifically because he wanted something different? Uh, or something that seemed, quote unquote, big air quotes, more American? No, he was asking because um, my sister was in college at the time. And so mm -hmm. he would come over and I was living at home with my parents and he would come over in the mornings to take the school bus. And my sister fed him that stuff. Oh, okay. She was gotcha. a college student. And yep. so she <laughs> and so they were used to that. And that's what he can, he comes over with it in his backpack. Don, as you listen to these stories, what's coming up for you in your earliest memories or memory or memories? Because we know it's not necessarily a single point. I can't remember a particular event that happened to me personally when I was younger. I think my consciousness of uh, being racially different was because uh, I'm a baby boomer. 
you know, I, I remember uh, John F. Kennedy being assassinated in 63. I was mm. nine years old. That event shocked me because as a nine-year-old, I realized that even the president of the United States could be killed. Hmm. Now, what kind of realization is that? <laughs> but with civil rights and with all these things happening during that time period, I think watching these things on TV, because my parents never talked in terms of race. And so my exposure came to what I was being exposed to on television. Hmm. Beyond movies, the news, what was happening in America during that time. And there was a lot of civil unrest. And so that coupled with the messages that I was receiving by the movies on TV, um, all the John Wayne movies, all the Western movies, and how American Indians are depicted as savages and all they were doing was impeding Western movement to the West. And, you know, so we're, we're portrayed in this negative light. And then the images I got of blacks on TV during that time were, were from shows like Amos and Andy, where they had these stereotypical characters of black people and or watching Tarzan on, on the hmm. weekend Tarzan movies where here's this white guy in all of black Africa being the king of the jungle and 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 uh and Africans were shown as these stereotypical second third you know level human beings that just ran around in in uh, jungle clothing making noises i mean it was horrible right <laughs> and so for me, it was this kind of slow consciousness because at the same time, I'm growing up in an environment, even though we were poor, I'm heavily influenced as a young child what I'm watching on TV. And I'm growing up watching shows like Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver and all these iconic 50s and 60s television shows that depicted all these white families and depicted a white lifestyle that although I wasn't experiencing that, that was my idea of what it was to be an American. And I didn't see myself any differently at that time. And so what I saw in those shows, I think by the time I was in grade school and with what was happening in the country, I began to have this realization that, uh-oh, I'm not Leave it to Beaver. I'm the Indian that John Wayne, when he pulls his gun and pulls his trigger and six of us fall off our horse, I'm the guy falling off the horse. I'm the one being shot. I'm the one when we were playing in the neighborhood, cowboys and Indians, everybody wanted to be cowboys. Nobody wanted to be Indians, including myself. <laughs> um, so that realization begin to dawn on me because then I could look at my my father and my mother and begin to realize that my dad was black and my mom was Indian. And that meant that I was both and neither one of them were being projected in a in a empowering way on mm. TV. So for me it was kind of a slow realization that 
oh, gee, I'm not white. My first experience, I think, with overt racism wasn't until I was in high school and that I, I was sitting here thinking about this. And, you know, there may have been instances when I was younger, but at that time I didn't have the social consciousness to realize that maybe what was happening to me mm. was due to bias and prejudice and discrimination as opposed to just someone being a jerk. You, you know, know what I, I mean? I can and, relate to that a, a lot. You know, a lot of the socialization that I got outside of the household in terms of the otherizing effect. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it came when I began to encounter other, this, this notion that that family over there, I had to encounter other kids who said that their parents said they couldn't play with me because we're the bad kids and there's only two uh, black kids in the whole neighborhood and, yeah. and we the bad ones. How, how do we get there? <laughs> um, you know, so it was that other, that otherizing mechanism that, that, that started to, to, you know, where we couldn't have, we couldn't play with the whole collection of kids all the way around. Like my my social consciousness and otherizing effect came from the neighborhood kids acting out the views of their parents that go all the mm. way back to my great grandfather who was looked at as undesirable in this area in this area. You know, and 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 so for me it wasn't a specific incident. It was just accumulation of what I was being bombarded with on television during the civil rights time period. Coupled with, I think, just that slow realization that I wasn't white, that I indeed was black and Indian, and then beginning to realize that because of those differences and from what I'm seeing on TV and from what I'm hearing, you know, about civil rights and what I'm hearing about this, oh, that means I'm going to experience it, even though I didn't quite understand what that was yet. But there is that, that awakening that you are different, even though we're, even though we may not quite understand exactly what that means. When I was in high school, we were still desegregating schools, and I was uh, mm. attending Minneapolis Central, and they approached uh, four of us at Central to see if we would be uh, willing to integrate and and uh, go to West High School Wait, over by Lake of the Isles. Really. Oh, yeah. You were one and of the four? I was one of the four. Wow. And so we went, and this was uh, in winter semester. So four of us transferred to West from Minneapolis Central. This was 1971, I believe it was. <laughs> so there were four of us. I lasted two weeks, and I was the last one to be suspended from West. <laughs> the other three got suspended within the first week. West was an open prep school, so you could leave to go to have lunch, and it's wintertime. So I had on my coat, and back then I was styling uh, one of those knit tops like uh, like Sly and the Family Stone. Because like, I also had, I also like had a fro. <laughs> not like Cosby, man, like, like Sly and the Family Stone with those knit colorful hats. Okay. And, so I'm like... <laughs> 20 feet from the door, and this white uh, white male approached me and uh, looked at me and said, uh, where are you going? I said, I'm going out to have lunch. He said, okay, well, we don't wear hats in school. I said, okay. I acknowledged him. I said, okay. And I continued to walk because I'm about 20 feet from the door. And he followed me. I took about three steps. He said, uh, excuse me, 
um, I just informed you we don't wear hats in school. I said, yeah, I heard you, but I'm leaving to go to lunch. It's wintertime, right? He says, well, if you take another step with that hat on, I'm going to kick you out of school for insubordination. <laughs> and so I, I said, what is insubordination? He said, it's failing to obey orders. I said, you didn't order me to take off my hat. You merely informed me and I acknowledged you. So he says, if you take another step, you're out of here. So I took my hat off and I went outside. When I came back from lunch, I was called to the principal's office. They suspended me for the rest of that semester, which oh. was like six weeks. And he turned out to be an assistant principal. And he said that I proceeded to turn around and walk out the door with, with my hat on. Outright lie. Just mm. an outright lie. So for me, that was the first time that I dealt with overt racism. I mean, just overt. And to this day, I still don't understand why he did it. Other mm -hmm. than all four of us were uh, students of color, black. And we were all gone within two weeks. <laughs> so, wow. so, so much for segregation. Are, are, are there and, stories coming up for folks as you're listening? Because, Don, as you talk, like stories are starting <laughs> to flood. Uh, what stories are coming up for you, Luz and, uh, and Lee? There's so much, but I'll, I'll say more recently, the pattern is, and, and this is in person, right? So not really as much during the COVID because uh, we've been working at home and, and limited uh, interaction outside of the house with respect to um, shopping and things of that sort. But I remember, you know, as recently as, as a year ago, pre-COVID um, and leading up to a year ago, the pattern is I show up somewhere for service of some sort and folks will see me and, you know, I'm light skinned. I've got light eyes um, and people make an assumption that I'm not BIPOC, that I am some European white person. And then I say my name or I start spelling my name and then you could see the look. <laughs> right. And they're like processing this dissonance, like, wait a minute, you look white, I think you're white, but now you're giving me a name that's not white and I don't know what to do with it. And <laughs> I, if you know me, I will spell my name very slowly. I'll say Luz, L-U-Z, and then I pause. <laughs> and then they'll say, they'll ask me, can you spell it again? And I'm right looking at them. Like right? Three letters, homie? <laughs> <laughs> three letters. So I do it again. L-U-Z. And then I'll say Z as in zebra. And they'll say, can you, can you spell it one more time? And then it's like, okay. I will say, can you explain to me what is it about three letters that you are unable to capture the first time, let alone the second time, and now you want me to spell it the third time? And then they look at me like, oh, boy. And then I'll ask them, if my name were Liz, would you have me spell it three times? And without fail, they'll say no. And then I say, thank you. Then what's the difference? Why are you asking me to spell my name three times 
when the only difference between my name and Liz is one vowel. Uh, they are understanding that they have some work to do, <laughs> you know, in terms of their growth. And they they start to just have it, have it, have it. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't. And I'll say, that's okay. That's very awkward. But I'll let them sit in their awkwardness. And I'll say, it's okay. I have time for you to figure out why you are asking me to spell my three-letter name three times. And I'll wait for you. And then it, it just is a wide silence. And then they'll be like, uh, can you just write it for me? And I'm like, oh, God, no. I I mean, one of my earliest name ones is uh, like in elementary school. I remember we'd all go into like the auditorium and the teachers would be like, okay, here are the first grade teachers. And they'd come out and they'd read their list. And if they say your name, then you get up and you go stand, you know, where that teacher was. And every year it would come up and the teacher would go, okay, I'm going to have trouble with this name. And I would just go, that's me. And I is like, I know, I know it's me. And, and, so and what, what, age, I can, what age again, you say? What I, mean, age, I remember age? that in like first grade. Like so in first grade, numbers. you're already picking up on a pattern that allows yeah. you to jump in and start taking care of well, other folks. And the right? other I just thing, want to point that out. Yes. And the other thing was at that time, my last name was spelled L-Y, which is what was put on my parents' um documents when they came Mm -hmm. to the U.S. as refugees. They came through France, I believe. And so there's a lot of French Lees that spell L-Y. But then I always got the, oh, are you a liar because your last name is Lie? Uh. And so in sixth grade, my dad decided he was going to legally change all of our last names to L-E-E. And so then we said, well, dad, we all want American names then. And we told him that since he was going to change our names, we were all going to pick an American name that we were using for people anyway. Like when you go to Starbucks or anything like that, they ask for your name. We were using fake names already because it was just too much of a hassle to try to tell him what our real name was. So we all wrote down American names. And my dad went and said, okay, I'll do it. And then he didn't do it. (laughs) And we were like, Dad, why didn't you do it? You know, we, we want American names. And he was like, this is your name. We're only changing the spelling of our last name. You don't get to change your first name. That's the name we gave you. Hmm. And I remember us being like so frustrated because we all had these such ethnic names. And so my younger siblings, uh, Linda and Thomas, because we got to choose the names. We were old enough at by the time they were born that my parents let us as the siblings choose their names. So they both have Americanized names. I, I want to pull wow. out a few noticings and some patterns here as you shared. First and foremost, <laughs> you mentioned and referenced ethnic sounding names mm. uh, just already in a space. So that then implies non-white. I just mm-hmm. want to point that out that some of that's been in, in the mix here is this other rising that has happened. Mm-hmm. But also in all of our stories. Um, even Don, the story that you shared around overt, I think there would be some listeners who who wouldn't necessarily have put that into a category of overt racism. And I think it's it's interesting that even the stories that are coming to mind are not the stories where somebody called me the N-word or somebody was was like direct racial animus. Right. The stories that came to my mind were these deep otherizing stories that weren't 
in your face, clan mask, you know, clan hat mm-hmm. on kind of things, which is what most people think about. The stories that we have all shared have had to do with some type of otherizing about who we were, about our language, um, you know, uh, and they have not been, um, you know, the story that where where I was playing with some friends and they said, well, he can't play with us because he's an N-word or or right. um, the time that we were went down to Four Seasons Park and we were playing and we were sliding down the hill and folks decided they want to have a snowball fight. And then as we began to throw snowballs, they began to throw rocks. And by the time we got home, we were the ones that were throwing rocks and police were talking to us. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it, it was... Um, those didn't come to mind. I guess they, the ones that, that seemed that's what formidable. also makes it so difficult. You know, there's this, yeah. this thing where we try to tell people this happens to us. And white right. folks are like, I don't think mm-hmm. it happens because it doesn't happen to me. Let me tell you about what happened to me literally two days ago. Hmm. I was shooting in, a, in Bloomington in an affluent part of Bloomington. And uh, shooting, I went in camera, camera shooting, camera right? shooting. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I was with my husband um, and we went into this uh, London Byerly's because I really, really had to go to the bathroom. And he was like, oh, get some snacks while you're in there because we like to munch in the car and stuff. So, OK, I put my mask in. I go inside and I, uh, I approach an, an older woman um, who worked there. And I said, um, oh, excuse me, where's your restroom? And she was, you know, putting stuff onto a shelf when I approached her. And so she directs me to where it is. And so I go and I come back. And as I'm walking back, I notice that she's waiting for me. And so she turns away when she sees me coming as if she was doing something. And as I walked away and I looked over my shoulder, I see her sneaking to go check the bathroom. Hmm. And I was like, am I dirty? Like what, what gave this woman this impression Right. And then she comes out and she's kind of like watching me to make sure I buy something at this point, which I was planning on doing anyway. But I, I, I go on. I'm, I'm just thinking about, it, you know, and then the two guys at the checkout were so nice to me. And I bought two pieces of chocolate cake and a chocolate bar. Yes, that's that unhealthy. But that's what I was buying. Um, <laughs> and so they were making jokes like, oh, this is your dinner. Oh, you know, that's so funny, blah, blah, blah. And I'm walking on. I go to the car and I'm telling my husband this happened. I said it was really weird. Like I felt like she was watching me. And she went to check the, the restroom after I came out. Like, she seemed busy when I first approached her. I was in there for, like, two minutes. And I remember my husband was going, well, maybe she had to go, too. And I was like, mm. don't don't try to justify or give her excuses. You know, I understand. And so I was, I'm, try- I'm trying to describe to him what happened and and describe to him what he's doing to me right now as I'm telling him. What happened? Not in any sort of like, I know he didn't mean any malice by saying, well, maybe she had to go too, or maybe she didn't realize she had to go until you mentioned it, you know, but I understand why you feel that way because you've never had to experience this before. But you also need to understand why I felt like it was a race thing because I have experienced this before. And after talking about it, he was like, oh, you know, like, okay, okay, I can do better. I can do better, you know? Well, and it's that impact that that folks, if they've not felt it themselves, that they can't relate and you've got to connect the dots, you know, that otherwise they wouldn't be able to gather. Going back to your Americanizing your name uh, experiences, my name was changed by one of the nuns in the grade school I was at, I think I was in fourth grade, and she looked at my name, Luz Maria, and 
And she thought it was too hard. And, you know, I said loose was fine. And apparently that was too hard. So she changed it to Lucy. And so th- throughout wow. my grade school, high school and into college years, I was known as Lucy, not because I wanted to or my parents had any uh, input in it. It was because it was easier for her. I grew up in it was initially a Polish neighborhood and then quickly became Mexican. We were one of the first Mexican families to integrate uh, the neighborhood. But it wasn't until I was in law school that I found Mm. my voice to be able to Mm. say, no, I'm going to go back to my birth name. And I claimed my identity at that point. But people don't know what these type of actions, you know, other people might say, well, that was innocent and that wasn't a big deal. No, no. My cousin in elementary school, we were in the same class. The teacher literally changed his name to Bruce because his last name is Lee. And for the rest of his elementary school and high school, he was Bruce. Bruce Lee. I, I had a student whose name was changed to Tater. Um, with Are you no, serious? No comparison, just for the sake of ease for other people's. Like it, the 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 name conventions. This these these subtle ways that folks imply things over. I, I, I'll never forget. And 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 I and I want to stress this because I'm hard, it's hard pressed to say these words. But I actually, it was beneficial to me to have folks say overt in your face, I don't like you because you're black. And that's what I think stuff. Because it, it formed a boundary. It let me know what how deep uh, across Hazelwood I could go growing up. It let me know when I would when, we, when I began to go to school here in St. Paul, my mom moved us into St. Paul for all the reasons that we've talked about. And I'm going to share the story, main story in a second. But when I would go back on the weekends to grandma, um, one of the things that I would find out is how different, right? How much of these things weren't an issue when I was at, with playing with my friends in St. Paul, but when I would go back to Maplewood for the weekends to stay with grandma, all of a sudden these things began illuminated. And one of the things that socialized me, there was a moment where my mother's best friend, Marcy, was murdered. It was a big story and she was murdered by white friends. And it was mm-hmm. one of those things where my mom and Marcy, who were the two black girls in the area, um, somebody always had an issue with them. Either they were being propped up because they were do, they did well in school and sports and all that kind of stuff. They just, everybody loved them. And it caused this animus from folks who were said, wait, but they're, they're supposed to be looked at as down here. Instead, they were very popular. And I remember when the murder happened, how low, how low, much of a low point. People began to ascribe something about her. I mean, she was a perfect Star Wars student. Everybody loved her. She was head in place, all that kind of stuff. But yet all of a sudden, even still, folks tried to find a way to blame her for it. And it put to the surface this implied um, you aren't, shouldn't be here thing. And that stuck with me even to getting to, and it's something I've been having a hard time explaining, even as we think about what our most recent experience is. And so I want to I start with you, Luz. What has been your most recent experience of all these patterns that we've been talking about in terms of being conscious or aware of of racial implications around us? You know, walking into a store with my daughter who's Afro-Latina and having having her tell me, you know, she's got to go do something in the store. She's going to go look for something. And I, so we separate. And then having her come to me and say, hey, can you walk around with me? And now she's, you know, almost an adult. 
um, and wondering what's going on. And then learning afterwards that the minute we separate, she's being followed by store clerks um, because she is Afro-Latina, because she presents as black. And um, that's just so hurtful, you know, of course, for her to experience and me as a mom and thinking that when she's with me, she doesn't get treated that way. And she tells me that. And I see that. And it's heart wrenching to see that happen to anyone and much less a loved one in, in, in this time, right? In 2021, in 2020, whatever. Uh, and thinking that we have so much yet to learn and to grow and to change in our society so that people don't have those experiences anymore. Um, I, I can't imagine you guys being parents and seeing your kids go through things that you guys went through as well. Like, you know, I, I can't imagine how that feels, Luz. It's, it's heart-wrenching. Um, and, and my girls have both said to me um, that when they're in the store, they will always be followed without fail. Um, and when they're with me, they don't. Luce, I don't know if you remember this. I brought students to you. You and your daughter came and spoke to some of my students when we were coming back from the Mille Lacs band, um, the museum on Mille Lacs that Don, you had hooked us up with to go and see the wax statue of your grandfather. So that day when we came back, we had, we met Luce in Roseville for dinner as so she could help talk with them and kind of unpack their experience. Do you remember that, Luce? I do, I do. So I was going to get something and the manager came over to me and he said, don't worry, there'll no longer be a problem. And I said, what are you talking about? So apparently some folks had complained about us in the back because of our subject matter, saying that we were making them uncomfortable. And the manager of that <laughs> restaurant told them, you know, that, they, that, that he would be happy to help them uh, wrap up and find a different place to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he said, you can take some free stuff to go, basically. But, but it, was, it was interesting to... to, to that that it, it's it just comes at you that frequently, that easily. My latest experience is one of these ones that happens, I think, sometimes that that you hope wasn't a result of race, but you leave the experience unsure. Two, three weeks ago, we'd been uh, experiencing... I'd been experiencing difficulty with our Wi-Fi connection. Mara had uh, contacted uh, the phone company, and, and uh, they were coming out, and they told her that the person would just have to go to the back of the house to check the lines coming into the house, right? So Mara's at work, and of course, I'm at home doing working from home, and there's a knock at the front door, and I said, you know, can I help you? He says, yeah, I'm here to check your phone line. I said, okay, I was under the impression that, uh, you know, you only had to check the lines coming into the house. And uh, he said, well, no, you know, I'll have to come in and check the phone. Well, the gentleman was standing there and he didn't have on a face mask. And so I looked at him and I said, well, you know, you can't come in the house unless you put on a face mask. And he said, okay. And he turned around, he walked 
out down the driveway. And my driveway is a good, what, yeah. 30, 40 <laughs> feet mm-hmm. to the street, yep. right? He walked down the driveway to his truck. And I thought, okay, he's, he's going to go grab a face mask. Uh, this dude hopped in his truck and drove away. <laughs> and I'm standing there absolutely dumbfounded. And I'm thinking, well, is this guy just an outright jerk? Because, you know, if he's a representative for this business, he sure is a piss poor one. Did he react to me because maybe he's one of these, you know, folks who don't believe in wearing face masks? Or did he react to me because I'm a big male of color? I hate being in those situations where... I have to go through each one of those scenarios Mm -hmm. without making a judgment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, because I just can't, you know, I was ready to kind of say, well, the guy's just a jerk. You know, Mm -hmm. he really should Mm -hmm. not be working for this company. And so I told my neighbor who's white, I told him about that. And he looked at me and said, you sure he didn't do that to you because of who you are? Yeah. I, I said, man, I'm I'm trying not to assume that that's what happened, but you know, that's mm-hmm. one of those situations that we kind of encounter all the time. You're like, man, you know, yeah. You know Is what it I'm just me or about? do I like when exactly. that happens? Sometimes I'm like, did I overreact about something? Exactly. You know, like sometimes I'm like, did I say something weird? And because you we, don't want to believe it's a race thing. Exactly. But you have enough experience. Look, look, all of our story, and we've only scratched the surface of our stories, right? We can get exemplars for days. Huh. But you notice the patterns, and and you can hold out for the for a benefit of the doubt. But the patterns have been so consistent. Um, for me, it, it happens in the neighborhood around noise complaints. So especially even COVID, you have to be outside. And mm-hmm. and and we you you met my kids you've met us we 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 ain't quiet people and we don't do the I'm gonna be quiet for somebody else's comfort stuff and and I keep finding myself recently in situations where people are put into situations where they realize these racialized patterns and have to figure out how to navigate. I was out back. Um, I had music going. I was working in my garage and I was talking back and forth ac- across the alley with my neighbor. He was playing uh, Bon Jovi, which is a, I, I love me some Bon Jovi. It's, I grew up an 80s kid. Um, so we were laughing about that and how I get we get free drinks whenever we sing it doing karaoke. As we're talking, um, somebody who I didn't recognize as a neighbor comes driving through and says, hey, can you turn your music down a little bit? And then looks, they're in the driver's side. I'm on their passenger side. The other neighbor's standing right outside the door. We're both playing music, right? right. <laughs> and they look at me. Can you turn your music down? It's been really noisy in this area. And we're both, me and the neighbor across the alley, are looking at each other like, wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> like, we, we are just stuck on how to respond to this person. And, I, and my first thing out my mouth was, do you live around here? And before I could say it, my neighbor across the alley said, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. He said, I'll tell you what you can do. You can drive up, drive your ass up this alley. And and he was he was done. Like he was he was just like, hell no, you're not gonna say that to me. So then when the car drives away, because they're like, oh well, you didn't have to be all, you know, I was mm-hmm. just asking you nicely. So they're trying to put it back on you, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of gaslight you in that way. And we weren't having it. And so they moved on. But then my neighbor looks out and he goes, They would have never asked, they would have never asked that question if you weren't standing here. Um, and we had this realization. You know, the, the most recent one is uh, I go to a store in Roseville and every time I go to this grocery store, I buy firewood. <laughs> and so 
I come out, I usually buy the firewood inside, I go out to my car, and because of the previous patterns, I always keep my receipt with me just in case. Hmm. And I'm walking, and I get out, I put load up my groceries, I pull up to the firewood, and I'm going to go get my four bundles of wood. Um, and then as I do that, as I'm starting to haul the wood in, I see this kid who works in the grocery store come around, and he's, I could tell, he's trying to figure out an in, uh, a way to get into conversation. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at him, and I'm on my last bundle of wood, and I go to set it down, and I go over to him, and I say, did somebody send you over there to check my receipt? And, like, relief came over, and he was like, yes, I'm sorry, I didn't want to say anything. And I was like, and I just, I had time, because you don't always have time, and I just said, hey, you know, kid, come here. I was like, why do you think they told you to come over there and check that? And he did not want to say. And I said, I want to let you know that this actually happens quite often. And so I said, what's the pattern of when you get asked to go and follow up somebody and the realization that came over his eyes as he started to run the numbers? Um, it was palpable. And I, and, and I keep finding myself in situations where people are put in the situations. We've yeah. had, I had an officer call, come, come by um, and, and he was just rolling around and I looked up and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? Is everything all right? He said, I got a, uh, I got a complaint about somebody suspiciously walking into people's yards. Um, and I go, all right, well, I haven't seen anything like that. He goes, don't even worry about it. And I was, and, I, and it was, again, it was that moment where I had to stop and go like, why, why would you say don't even worry about it? He said, man, we get calls like this from time to time for no other reason. It could have been you. Do you live here? <laughs> you know, and he was saying it jokingly, like not give me a special response. And I said, well, yeah. And I said, let me ask you what address. And when he said the address, kid you not, kid you not. I had gotten out of my car, saw that somebody's trash can was still pulled out to the curb and it had been tipped over because of the wind. Cause now it was empty. And I put their trash can back in their area. And mm. I said, I said, was the complaint about somebody messing, messing around by their garage, by the trash? And he stopped and he looked at me and I said, yeah, I went and, and picked somebody's trash can that got blown over and put it back into their, into their space. I'm wondering if that was the call. And when we confirmed times, we couldn't say for sure. And it gets to your point, uh, Lee, about, not, about wondering why. Mm. Both of us were sitting there wondering if that was the reason that it was called. You know, Anthony, after living where we live here in Roseville for, you know, for 19 years, I'm at the point where I don't have, I don't worry if I, when I used to be able to walk through the neighborhood about getting that call because we don't see police hmm. drive through here, right? And if we do see a squad car drive through, it's because they're here for a reason. Hmm. We just don't have police driving through. When I first moved in, I, I was concerned about that very thing hmm. because. You know, when people see people they don't recognize, usually us, um, they call the police, right? <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, you know, how long does it take for us, if for us to ever reach that point? Because when people move out and new people move in, it's like we have to establish that, the fact that we live here. Because we hear these stories on, you know, broadcasts on the news, unfortunately, all the time. Oh, mm -hmm. so so in this area to that to that same point, um, I think I, I mentioned this. Uh, Lee, you were talking about the J five soccer tournaments, McMurray Fields, right? 
J4. Sorry, J4. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of a different 80s movie. I'm in my 80s brain now. <laughs> um, so, so J4 happens. I find very interestingly that as I engage people around the fairgrounds area, they, they have some complaints about the fairgrounds, but they've acquiesced to it. Um, but the majority of complaints that you'll get when talking to folks is about J4. Oh, all this traffic mm-hmm. and all this stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? Nothing compares to fares traffic in this area. Yeah, that's everybody in the state coming for that, you guys. Right, Come on now. right. And you have, and, and but you're going to complain about some soccer tournaments or, you know, I don't know what that's going over there. You know, at least the state fair is mm-hmm. open to everybody. And I'm like, who told you that J4 is not open to everybody? Do you want me to walk you up there and get... And 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 we can get some food and see some, like what like what is really under mm-hmm. underneath here? And again, it comes back to and I think this is a very interesting pattern in our whole conversation that we have overt examples, but the ones that matter the most are these ones that we're talking about where we're either not sure or they come to us in a more passive or or nice or 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 non overt or covert way. Mm-hmm. Um, are the I mean, ones that rather, are most I, important to me. You know, there for folks listening, um, there are things that you can do, right? Uh, hmm. There are ways that you can you can address these issues without without causing controversy. I think a lot of times people don't want to bring it up because they're afraid of how it may seem um, reflecting on them. Mm-hmm. I know that um, Amy Brenmoen, who is a city council member in the Como area, have taken white neighbors to J four before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went with her one year of like, this is open to everybody. You don't have to be among to go. You can enjoy it. You live in the neighborhood. Um, we've done the 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 name episode on Counter mm-hmm. Stories before. And my sister-in-law, God bless you. Hi, Kathy. She listens to us, my white sister-in-law. And um, I think what well, was a Christmas 2019. She gave me a big hug. And then she said, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> And she sent me down. She said, I heard on your show that I don't say your name right. And I want to be sure that I get it right. And how many, I, that just felt so good to me. Hmm. You know, not only that she listens to our show, but she's always learning from it. And so she wants to ask and she wants to better the way that she understands things and the way that she behaves. And, you know, so there are, you know, we're not, I think that the, the issue that sometimes I hear from folks about, not just about counterstairs, but about talking about these things in general is like, well, not all white people are like that or not all white people, you know, would would follow you around a grocery store or do those sorts of things. And so that's why, like, you know, after talking to my husband about what happened at Lund's and Byerly's, he was like, should we go in and say something? Hmm. You know, like you should you should say something. And I said, no, because you know what? When I came out when I was checking out those two guys at the checkout, we were having fun. We were talking, we were laughing. And, you know, that's that's that lady's problem. I said, that's her problem. <laughs> and I'm and not going to judge all people, all white people, because of that interaction. Well, I think that mechanism, and Don, I think you've alluded to this before, too. Um, you know, we are often put in positions of having to pick up the baggage of other folks. Mm. So, 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 your choice, your decision is, you know, is indicative of that, right? We, we, we have to experience and, and navigate the world. And your choice to educate that young man. Right, right. On my own terms, on my own time. And because mm-hmm. I had the time and wherewithal to do it, but that's not always the energy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, 
you know, picking up other people's baggage is a whole nother show, right? Racial, <laughs> people's racial baggage. I want to have us think about this, that what we did today in looking at our earliest series of memories around racial consciousness and our most recent um, is an activity that comes from the Beyond Diversity um, uh, seminar with Pacific Education Group. Shout out to Glenn Singleton um, who created it. But one of the things that it's it's important about it is it's not just a people of color thing. We all can benefit from examining what our earliest memories were and what our most recent memories were and trying to make sense of the patterns that come up when that happens, whether you're a person of color or a white person. It does not matter. It's, a, it's an exercise that not enough of us do. And I think just hearing you all stories and ways of, of, of kind of making sense of the world in that way helps me to better understand those racialized patterns. And that's what consciousness is, understanding the patterns and the nuance that goes into something so we are better in position to navigate strategically. And so I thank you all for your stories and, and, and my family's story, stories are sacred. So I appreciate you for those stories and the ways that we can continue to do that and get to know each other in the process. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us. Donald Eubanks, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I have and share on this program are solely my own and not to be attributed to my employer or my office. Thank you. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group. Thank you all for listening. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway with crew members Don Eubanks, Luz Maria Frias, and Hli Lee. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.